the idea that that uh, we want to talk about today as we come into God's Word. And it's this idea that and oftentimes in life, in those moments where we really want to play the victim, where we want to become the victim, those are the moments when God wants to show us his victories. When we want to play the victim, God will show us his victories. We're going we're gonna to get into that, and like at the end of the day, that's what we're coming back to. But let me give you some, some back play to help us get there. As a church, uh, our church is taking 2017 to ask the question, what does it look like to be restored by God? In the middle of all the craziness, busyness, uh, I'm tired, uh, all those things, what does it look like to be restored by God? And there's some things that we're doing as a church to, to do that. And um, over the next four Sundays, we're going to talk specifically about an idea that I think is very relevant for the culture and times that we live in. And the idea is simply this, restoring honor. Restoring honor. In a, in a culture and a time where... Uh, we hold high our preferences, our opinions, where we value our individualization. What does it look like to restore honor? What does it look like to restore honor in our culture and society? And we're going to do that by studying a book that uh, you might not have just picked up off of your bedroom shelf in the last couple years, <laughs> uh, a book called Malachi. Malachi, I want to encourage you, if you've got a Bible or if you've got a smartphone, uh, to find that in your, in your Bible. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, it's the book right before Matthew, which begins the New Testament. And we're just, like I said, we're going to take four weeks. Uh, We've got four Sundays before our next Love Shelbyville Day, and we're going to spend those four weeks digging into this book and, and really challenging ourselves around this idea of restoring honor. Restoring honor. <clears throat> As God would often have it, he, um, for whatever reason, he just really enjoys teaching me sometimes the hard way, the lessons that I get to share and preach with our church family. And so uh, I found myself in the last couple of weeks having, to, to be perfectly honest, a couple of the hardest weeks that our family has gone through in a long time. <laughs> uh, in the past eight days, um, I've been a part of four different funerals. Uh, some, some family, some very close friends, um, some of our church family, uh, and, and then in the middle of all that, I get a call that my grandpa had been readmitted to the hospital. He's 84 years old, uh, lived this incredible life, and uh, he, praise God, like he got better. But in the middle of all that, I'm like, oh gosh, he's probably dying too. I mean, you know, let's just be honest, like, right? I, I begin to play that role of victim very well, and then now I get to preach on that, right? Um, uh, last week, Caitlin got rear-ended. Uh, in Louisville, uh, so that was fun, and you know, it's just, it's like one of, the, one of those seasons where it's like one thing after the next, after the next, after the next. Anybody, I know I'm not the only one who's been in this situation, and, and um, it all came to a head, so Grandpa gets admitted to the hospital. Uh, I drive up there late one night this week, and because I, I'm going to spend the day with him, and my, my plan was, because it was a rush schedule, because there's four funerals that I'm involved in anyway, like, I'm going to sit with my grandma and grandpa in the hospital, I'm going to write my sermon for Sunday. I mean, I, we'd been studying, like, a long time, but i got to actually write it out, I'm going to do that. And so I get up to Indiana, uh, I, I'm spending the day with him, and uh, I go to lunch in the cafeteria at the hospital with my grandma. And up to this point, right, like, I'm just there for my grandma and grandpa. That's all they know. And, and so we sit down at lunch, and I have the audacity. And I'm like, Grandma, let me just tell you how terrible my week has been. <laughs> right? And I'm like, 
I mean, it's, it's a natural thing for all of us to do. Like, Grandma, let me just tell you how terrible my week has been. I start telling her all these things. Let me tell you how bad it's been. And then we, we finish lunch. Like, that was the subject of lunch. It was like therapy session for Blake. <laughs> when we get back to the hospital room, Grandpa's laying there in his bed. He's attached to oxygen. He can't, can't get up and go to the bathroom himself. Grandma's got to help him. And I sit down on my computer because i got a sermon to write. And I turn to Malachi 1 and I read it again because that's what we're going to preach. And I'm like, oh, gosh. God, you got to be kidding me. Because I had totally put myself in that, that place of being the victim, right? Everything in my life was, was going wrong, was going bad. And, and I think we, we all have seasons. And in the middle of everything that's going on, we all have this, this temptation. And quite honestly... If we're, if we're going to call it like it is, it's almost an expectation from our culture nowadays to, to become a victim, to play the role of the victim. We fall into this trap of becoming the victim. And so uh, I, I just want to go on this journey through Malachi chapter 1 and the first verses of chapter 2 and, and see this idea come to life and see how the gospel of, of Jesus Christ breathes life into it, okay? So, uh, so a quick note on the book of Malachi. And this is important because as I look out today, uh, as, as in most Sundays, like there's some of us who have been here for a long time. Uh, there's some of us who I know are Christians. There's some of you that I don't know. I don't know your story. You may not be Christians and that's great. There's some of you that are all over the spectrum, right? We all have different stories and we're all here for some reason. Whether you can identify that or not, we don't know. But there's some important things to know about Malachi. Malachi is a book of prophecy. Um, and it was a book of prophecy that was written before Jesus came. So in other words, these people didn't know the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came to, to die for them, to save them from their sins, and to give them this new hope and this future plan that we heard Sean talk about. And so some of this is going to sound really super harsh because there's, there's a side of God that God is truth and that he is a God of wrath. But he had to show us that side so that we would understand and appreciate the grace of Jesus Christ. So if we get in the middle of this text and you're like, oh my gosh, God is crazy. Just remember that this is all in light of a much bigger story where Jesus is coming. All right? All right. Long intro. Now we're ready. Malachi chapter 1, if you've got it, you can follow along with me. If not, we're going to have it on the screen. I'm going to be reading from the New Living. That doesn't make it better or worse. It just, it's the one I'm reading from today. I might be different next week. Who knows? All right. Malachi 1, the first eight verses. Says, this is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. I have always loved you, says the Lord. But you retort, really? How have you loved us? And the Lord replies, this is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor Jacob, but I rejected his brother Esau, and I devastated his hill country. I turned Esau's inheritance into a desert for jackals. Esau's descendants in Edom may say, we have been shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. But the Lord of heaven's armies replies, they may try to rebuild, but I will demolish them again. Their country will be known as the land of wickedness, and their people will be called the people with whom the Lord is forever angry. When you see the destruction for yourselves, you will say, truly the Lord's greatness reaches far beyond Israel's borders. The Lord of heaven's armies says to the priests, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. But you ask, 
How have we ever shown contempt for your name? You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. And then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The book of Malachi is this bridge between the history and story of the Israelite people and the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. And God starts the book by reminding the people of Israel that he loves them. Right? We sing the song just a minute ago, he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. We're like, we find comfort in that, right? Like, God, the God of the universe loves me. And God reminds the people of Israel that. But, but they respond with skepticism. They put themselves in the place of victims. And they say, but, oh, really, God? How have you loved us? Yeah, we know you love us, God. Like, that's what, like, we hear that all the time. God is love and God loves me. But... The people of Israel, in their case, you know, we know, God, that you were with us. We saw that you won the battles for us in in the Old Testament. We saw that you gave us the promised land. We've been told all the stories of how you saved our ancestors from Egypt. And and God, he tells some of those stories there in those first few verses. But now, but now the people of Israel are in upheaval. They have no respect for one another. Their, Their respect for God is in question and and most date this book, this writing at a time when they're not even in, in the promised land. They're not in Jerusalem. They're, they're exiled. They're separated from God. So, yeah, God, you love us and you tell us that you love us. But, but where are you now, God? Where are you now? Have you ever felt that way about God? Yeah, God, you, I know you love me. I know you've been good. But, God, the last two weeks have been crazy. So where in the world are you now? We would like to place ourselves in the position of being a victim. So in the time of the Israelites, that was fleshing out in their lives in this way. They were bringing these deformed animals as offerings and sacrifices. Whether they were blind, whether they were stealing them, whether they were deformed, they were bringing these and saying, okay, God, here, here you go. We checked the box. This is our sacrifice to you because of how you've loved us and saved us. You know, in, in today's American culture, we, we hear many Christians, and maybe you're a Christian today, maybe you're not, but we hear many Christians, or maybe we read many Christians posting on social media, and they're confessing their hope and faith in God in spite of all that's happening, in spite of what's happening in the political world, in spite of who our president is, in spite of what we see on the news, our hope and our faith is in God. And I'm not saying that's wrong. Obviously, I would think that is right. But... And yet, right, our, our love for the people who are often on the other side of those issues, the way that we love them doesn't seem to reflect the fact that our hope is in God. It seems rather to communicate that, that Christians are falling victim to this degrading society. And as we see the world getting worse, we would rather be a victim than join God in his victory. God is saying to us, I love you. And we say, yeah, we know you love us, God, but you don't understand the week I've had. We know you love us, but you can't imagine what I've had to go through. God, you, where were you when I had to go through this difficult moment in my story, when I was hurting? 
yeah, God, they tell me that you love me, but I should have never had to have gone through that if you truly loved me. I read a, a recent research study. It was done by two uh, sociologists, one from California, one from West Virginia. And, and it was really intriguing because they've identified this culture of victimhood in America. And they say this culture distinguishes itself from the honor cultures or the dignity cultures of past times. And they write that in a victimhood culture, individuals and groups display high sensitivity to slight. Anytime we feel like we're going to get slighted, we, we have a high sensitivity to that. We have a tendency to handle conflicts through complaints to third parties. I think the Bible defines that as gossip. I, maybe, I don't know. And, and we seek to cultivate an image of being victims who deserve assistance. We want to be a victim. We want to be a victim. One psychologist pointed out in reflection on the study, as progress is made toward a more equal and humane society. That's what we want, right? Like a view that everyone is created equal in the image of God. As progress is made towards that, it takes a smaller and smaller offense to trigger a higher level of outrage. The goalpost shift, he writes, allowing participants to maintain a constant level of anger and a constant level of perceived victimization. Self-awareness sometimes gets a little uncomfortable. <laughs> we realize that we like to play the role of the victim. But that is not what God has saved us for or saved us to. And so, yes, God, we want to love you. We want to love people because all people are made in God's image. But not at my expense because I'm a victim. I'm a victim in this. And so when we see that, when we see what's happened in the story of the Israelites, we see that that fleshed itself out in their life in these defiled, ugly sacrifices. And so the question becomes, when God looks at our heart and our motives, what about our sacrifice of our life to God is fake? What about it is deformed? What about it is false? And, and it brings up this question that, that really becomes the thesis for our whole study of the book of Malachi. And, and here's the question. What if our lack of honor in our relationship with God has misinformed the way that we honor one another? What if, right? Just go with me for a minute. What if we don't actually honor God the way that we think we do? What if our half-hearted efforts to follow God are actually dishonoring him and then as a result creating in us this, this attitude of dishonor for the people around us? So what if our lack of honor in our relationship with God has misinformed the way that we honor one another? The central message from Malachi to the Israelites is that they have stopped honoring God in numerous ways. They don't even see it in their own lives yet, but, but he's pointing out to them that they're playing the role of victim, that they're bringing these inadequate sacrifices. Later on, we're going to see that their spiritual leaders are cutting deals to, to get ahead. We're going to see that divorce is an issue in their society. They're complaining to God about justice, while at the same time, promoting people who are all about evil. They're not tithing. They're speaking negatively about God. They're viewing themselves as victims because the God who has done miracles amongst them is not catering to their every whim anymore. Malachi's message then from God to them is about restoring honor. Honor to God and as a result, honor to people. And over the next few weeks, we're going to dive deeper into this message and see if we can restore honor in our lives.
And as we do that, we'll restore honor in our homes between parents and children and husbands and wives. And then we'll restore honor in our church. We have more respect for the people that aren't like us that are sitting beside us. And as a result, in our community and in our culture. We would, we would really like to play the role of victim, but God would much rather show us his love in his victories. We go on to see that as we finish out Malachi chapter 1. Pick it up with me in verse 9. Go ahead. Beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Asked the Lord of heaven's armies. How I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will not accept your offerings. But my name is honored by people of other nations from morning till night. All around the world they offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you dishonor my name with your actions. By bringing contemptible food, you are saying it's all right to defile the Lord's table. You say it's too hard to serve the Lord, and you turn up your noses at my commands, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Think of it. Animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being presented as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these, asked the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who promises to give a fine ram from his flock, but then sacrifices a defective one to the Lord. For I am a great king says the Lord of heaven's armies, and my name is feared among the nations. God calls us out, right? He says we come to him and we're begging for mercy. God, have mercy on me. I'm a victim here. Please help me. And he says, why would I do that when you don't even honor my name? You see, God loves to show people how he himself can save. He loves to show you how he has already worked in others' lives so that you might catch a glimpse for how he would work in yours. There's a, a biblical story in which this gets fleshed out. It's a story of a man named Job. Job is a man who is very faithful. He believes greatly in God. In fact, uh, the Bible says that like, God had more trust in, in Job's faith than anyone else on the earth. And so when Satan's looking for someone to tempt, he comes to Job. And Satan takes everything away from Job. Family. Material items, his, his flocks, his home, all this stuff he takes away. And Job's initial response is to say, well, I won't lose hope in the Lord. But then his friends come around, right? And he starts telling the story. And, and more and more and more he finds himself saying, you're right. You're right. I should, be, I, I should be the victim. I am the victim here. And then we get to this point in Job 30. I want to read this passage from 16 to 23 with you. You know, over the course of the book, Job's attitude changes because he's lost his, his honor and his respect for the Lord. And he says this, And now my life seeps away. Depression haunts my days. At night my bones are filled with pain, which gnaws at me relentlessly. And with a strong hand, God grabs my shirt. He grips me by the collar of my coat. He has thrown me into the mud. I'm nothing more than dust and ashes. I cry to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you don't even look. You have become cruel toward me. You use your power to persecute me. You throw me into the whirlwind and destroy me in the storm. And I know you are sending me to my death, the destination of all who live. You ever had a night like that? Where that's how you feel about God? Job did. And in the following chapters, God comes in and reminds Job of, of all of the victories that he has had in Job's life prior to this one thing. 
And Job returns to his honor of the Lord. You see, when we want to play the role of victim, God wants to show us his victories. And when all of Israel in this moment is seeing themselves as victim, God showed them that there are people in the world outside of Israel's borders who are remembering all of their victories. You see, there's an irony here. God begins to remind them that his name is great, that it's worthy of honor, that he is to be feared, that he is the king. And that people all around the world know that. But you know why they know that? Because of all the great things that he's done for the people who are now whining to God. And so God's saying, look, I blessed you with all of these things. And everybody else in the world sees how blessed you are. And yet you're the ones that want to play the role of victim. You see, when we become a victim, we can't honor God because we've forgotten all the victories that God has shown to us. When we see ourselves a victim of a circumstance rather than a victor in Christ, it won't be long before we don't bring God our best. We won't bring God our best attitude, our best offering, or our best self because we've forgotten the victory that Christ brings into our lives. If you're new to Christ community, um, you get like two minutes off of the sermon. You can like check your Facebook or your Twitter for just a minute because I, there's, a, there's a moment here where I think it's really important that, that we talk to the people who are part of the covenant family because and I don't want you to think this is like a whatever, all right? It just, it just is what it is. And later on, for those of you that can check out for a minute, when you're in the middle of the mission and God has called you in and you're getting ready to be sent out to go do something incredible, to go outside the gates with Jesus, then you can listen to this. But if not, it's okay. If you're part of the covenant family, this is for you. God has done great, incredibly great things during the life of this church. He's done great things. And if you have been around to see him bring something out of nothing, if you've been around to see him transform a life through the course of a community group that met in somebody's home and you saw somebody go from far from God to, to near Christ, if you've been around and you've seen him change the life trajectory of someone or, or you've seen someone submit their life to Christ or if you've seen him give us a building rent-free, right? If you've seen any of those things, then don't you dare. Don't you dare question the greatness of God because of what you're in the middle of right now by giving him a half-hearted gift of yourself. Don't bring God a second-rate offering of yourself now because you're tired or because you're ready to play the role of victim. Because people all over this community have seen the greatness of God displayed through you. And we must continue to honor God with our best. We must use our strengths, abilities, and, and, and our influence to further the kingdom, just like we heard about Sean doing. Let's not be like the Israelites who got to be a part of many miracles that God did in the Old Testament only to dishonor him by giving a half-hearted sacrifice of our life. Let's be people who find their rest in giving their whole hearts to God, the God who is great and worth honoring. Don't rest on the accomplishments. Rest on the promises of God. So what does that look like? If you've been around for a while... It might look like making a disciple this year. There is someone in this community who is waiting on you to share Jesus with them and to train them in the way of following Christ. Do that. Maybe there's a, a need in the community that only you can see. Lead our church to help meet that need. Lead us in that. 
Maybe God's calling you to adopt. Maybe he's calling you to go to Honduras with our mission team this summer. Maybe he's getting you ready to send you out to plant a church that we don't even know about yet. But be faithful to what God is calling you to do. Don't give him a half-hearted offering of yourself. Maybe you've just been coming and you're sitting in a chair and it's time that you just give yourself to a serving team here on Sunday mornings. That's important too. But don't give him a half-hearted offering of yourself. All right, everybody's back in. Got that off my chest. If you're new, right, like I want those things for you, but I don't want you to hear them as like this dogmatic command. Like you have, like God wants to show you his grace more than anything, all right? And, and out of that grace is why we do those things. Okay. Sorry. Whew. All right. Here we go. All of us. All of us must battle back against the emotional response to busyness and fatigue and the things that drive us to victimhood. We have to battle back because everything about our world is going to create a struggle to give God everything. We're going to struggle to trade what we want in life to follow God's plan for our life. We can only give God parts of our life that we want to give, right? Like We're going to struggle to do that. We're going to struggle to make time to be together whether that's in biblical community or in serving or whatever, we're going to struggle for all those things. And, and that sacrifice to God of ourself becomes daunting. But as we think about this idea and as we, as we think about what we see in Malachi 1, there's another question that I want us to wrestle with. The question is this. What if the life you truly want is unattainable because of the life you're chasing after? What is the life that you truly want, the the life that you picture in your head, the life of joy and peace? What if the life that you truly want is unattainable because of the life that you're chasing after right now? What if you, like Sean, are trying the ways of the world, right? And it doesn't have to be drinking. It could be money. It could be business. Like There's a million ways to chase after the life that you want. What if you could never get there because you're so intent on chasing after it by yourself? Whenever we realize in this moment, as we think about, man, maybe there's something inside of me that that really is all about me and there's a victimhood mentality and I can't honor God because of what's inside of me. And whenever we realize that, whenever we think about how we're dishonoring God, there's, it's, it's easy to feel this personal shame, right? It's easy to feel guilt. But here's the trick. Restoring honor is not about shame. It is not about shame. It may have been in the days of Malachi because they, they didn't know who Jesus was yet, but, but someone really significant came along and changed our way of thinking about restoring honor. His name is Jesus Christ. And he changed the game forever. And because of Jesus, here's what we must be thinking as we get ready to, to explore the rest of this book. You have to shift your focus every day. You have to shift your focus from harboring your shame, from being ashamed of all the things that have happened in your life, from being ashamed that you're not a better person, from being ashamed from whatever lie Satan is speaking to you. You have to shift your focus from that to honoring his name. It's a mindset. You you have to to shift it. Malachi 2, 1 through 4 introduces this idea. It says, listen, you priests, this command is for you. 
Listen to me and make up your minds to honor my name, says the Lord of heaven's armies, or I will bring a terrible curse against you. I will curse even the blessings you receive. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you have not taken my warning to heart. I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with the manure from your festival sacrifices. That is some strong words right there. And I will throw you on the manure pile. That's, that's gross. I've done that to my brothers. Uh, then at last you will know it was I who sent you this warning so that my covenant with the Levites can continue, says the Lord of heaven's armies. God says, you've got to make up your minds. You've got to make up your mind that you're going to honor God with your life. It's not something that just happens by accident. Notice that God's first impulse, he's been incredibly dishonored by these terrible and ugly sacrifices. His first impulse isn't to tell the Israelites, you better shape up and you better, you better bring some good sacrifices. If you don't get me something good, that's on you. No! He says the first thing you have to do is you have to make up your mind to honor me. You have to restore honor to God himself. You see, Jesus Christ didn't die on a cross so that you would live a better life. He didn't die on a cross so that you would make better moral decisions because somebody did something really awesome for you. He died on a cross because he loves you and he wants you to be free of the guilt and the shame that comes with not living a perfect life. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says, What we do see is Jesus, who is given a position a little lower than the angels, and because he suffered death for us, He is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. You see, Jesus died for you to take your shame away. He doesn't want you to feel shame. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. Because we are now perfect children in the eyes of God, we can call God the Creator our Father. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Thank God. Thank God. That when it comes to restoring honor to God and in our culture, it is not about us being ashamed of who we are. It is about us giving honor to the one who makes us right. Now, if you don't know Jesus or you've never accepted that free gift of grace, you will continue to feel the weight of guilt and shame. That's called conviction, and the Holy Spirit uses that to draw you to the Lord and beg you to give your life to Him. And so if you feel that today, make sure that you know Jesus. Make sure that you know Him and that you haven't just been trying to live this life, a good life, by yourself. But if you know Jesus, living under the weight of guilt and shame should not be. You have to shift your focus from harboring your shame to honoring his name. Jesus gives you a new heart, but our desire to restore honor must overflow into our thoughts and into our actions. So we have to make up our mind to honor God. How do we do that? Romans 8, 7 says this, 8, 6, and 7, I believe. So, so letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. We often don't make up our mind because we haven't even had the faith to ask God what it is that he actually wants from us. We're too scared to ask. 
And because we're too scared to ask, we show that we actually haven't given God control of our lives. We want to hold that back from him. It's a, it's a half-hearted sacrifice. And all this adds to that downward spiral of shame that Satan wants to suck us into. But we must make up our minds to honor the name of the Lord. So what do you need to make up your mind about today? For some of you, you never realize that Jesus is, is more than just a good guy, but that he is someone who died to save you and to free you from shame and guilt. If that's you, you may need to give your heart to the Lord, to pray, to confess to God that you can't do it, and to believe that Jesus is the only way to be right with God. For some of you, you, you might need to express that in baptism. But make up your mind to do it. Maybe for some of you, you've been walking with Jesus and making, you need to make up your mind to do one of the things that we mentioned earlier. To serve, to lead. To say, we're going to have a community group in my neighborhood and we're going to invite our friends and our neighbors and we're going to continue to just read the scripture, pray, love on each other and figure out what it means to, to be Christians in this world. But you got to make up your mind. E. Stanley Jones is a missionary he said this, make up your mind or your unmade mind will unmake you. Mm. All of a sudden, all that indecision and preferences and opinions, they start to press in a little bit. Make up your mind or your unmade mind will unmake you. And so today, you have to make up your mind. Will you honor the Lord? If you will make up your mind to do that, then as we continue to go through Malachi, we're going to see how it is that the Lord will inform how we honor our brothers and sisters that live in community with us. Because when we honor God's name, he gives life back to us. He gives life back to us. We don't feel like what Job felt like in Job 30, but he gives life back to us, just as we heard Sean testify to. Malachi 2, 4 through 6. 5 and 6, sorry. It says, The purpose of my covenant with the Levites was to bring life and peace, and that is what I gave them. This required reverence from them, and they greatly revered me and stood in awe of my name. They passed on to the people the truth of the instructions they received from me. They did not lie or cheat. They walked with me, living good and righteous lives, and they turned many from lives of sin. If you will make up your mind, if we will make up our mind to honor God, to give him all of ourselves, he will give life back to us. I want to close with these few verses, words of Jesus in John 5. And after that, Wes is going to come lead us in a time of response. The band will sing. I've probably gone over my time again. I'm trying to get better, but it's not, it's not going very well. John 5, verses 21 through 24. Jesus says, For just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he's given the Son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. Mm. I tell you the truth. 
Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. Amen.